Welcome to Sapiens Talk Back, a podcast series brought to you by the Archaeology Center's Coalition and Radio Siams at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. This series has been developed in partnership with season four of the Sapiens podcast in order to discuss new approaches to changing archaeology's stories and who tells them. Our goal is to dig deeper into the pressing issues that the Sapien series raises for the practice of archaeology. My name is Sofia Taborski, and I am a PhD candidate in classical archaeology at Cornell University. And my name is Alice Wolf. I am a PhD candidate in medieval studies at Cornell. In this, the final episode of our series, we look back on both the Sapien series and the conversations we have had here on Sapien's Talk Back in order to look ahead to the future of archaeology. We have three special guests with us today representing new professional organizations that are pushing the discipline in consequential new directions. Professor Ayana Emilade Fluellen is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Riverside, and also co-founder and current president of the Society of Black Archaeologists, or SBA. Welcome to Sapiens Talkback, Professor Fluellen. Thank you, so glad to be here. Joining us as well is Professor Sarah Gonzalez, Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Washington and Curator of Archaeology at the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture. She is also a co-founder of the Indigenous Archaeology Collective, or IAC. Welcome, Professor Gonzalez. Hi, thanks for having me this morning. Lastly, we are joined by Professor Lewis Bork, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminal Justice at New Mexico Highlands University. Professor Bork is also a founding member of the Black Trowel Collective. Welcome, Professor Bork. Thanks all for having me. We are very pleased to be joined today by a panel of graduate student members from the Society of Black Archaeologists, the Indigenous Archaeology Collective, and the Black Trowel Collective, who will help guide our conversation. They will introduce themselves in the course of our discussions. Our discussion today is framed by three recent publications that all examine the changing landscape of archaeology. The first is a 2021 article by Inkem Ike, Gabrielle Miller, and Gabby Amoni Hartman in the archaeological record entitled, Anti-Racist Archaeology, Your Time is Now. The second is a 2021 year in review article by Jay Delpom Goodes, Sarah Gonzalez, and Isabel Rivera Coyezo, entitled Resistance and Care in the Time of COVID-19. Lastly, we will also discuss the Black Trowel Collective's community manifesto, Foundations of an Anarchist Archaeology. Let me start the conversation with a question for anyone who wants to answer. I'm interested in hearing more about how each of your organizations came to be. What were some of the reasons you formed your collectives and what were some early challenges you faced? I guess I can start that off. So the Society of Black Archaeologists was co-founded by myself and Dr. Justin Donovan, and we were students at the time. He was a first-year graduate student at the University of Florida, and I was a third-year undergraduate student at UF at the time. And We both had experience going to the Society for Historical Archaeology Conference and being able to count the number of Black attendees on our hands and really wanted to think about a way to create a space that didn't feel so isolating for archaeologists of African descent in the field. And during our time at UF, we drove up to Tallahassee one day to go to a Black psychology conference. Um, And on the drive down, we were just like, we want to start something like this. We need something like this for archaeology. And we, you know, that next day set up a meeting with Dr. Faye Harrison, who, author of Decolonizing Anthropology, former president of the AAA, was just a fantastic resource um, in terms of helping us Uh, are teaching us, really sharing with us the history of the Association for Black Anthropologists and what it meant to really like do the foundational work for a sustainable organization. But SBA started with word of mouth. It was Justin and I asking who we knew and then reaching out to those Black archaeologists and asking who they knew. And 
we had our first meeting at the SHA, I think in like 2011 or 2012. Um, and we had Teresa Singleton present, um, Cheryl LaRoche. It was this really intergenerational space that acknowledged a kind of desire for that, for that to flourish. The organization has since become a nonprofit in 2018, and we have over 200 members worldwide, both in the continental United States, South America, the Caribbean, on the continent of Africa, and in Europe. Um, and we've been really excited to really push forth the mission of not only providing a space to network, to support, to thrive for archaeologists of African descent, but also to advocate on behalf of communities that are connected to work at African diasporic sites. And our programming has ranged from an online writing group that meets once a week for members and non-members alike, to institutional changing, shifting programming with the Wintergrand Foundation, with Sapiens, with the Archaeology um, Center's coalition that really is addressing systemic um, issues within the discipline around curriculum development, culture, um, both within our academic fields as well as in the field itself. Um, so we're just really excited to see this organization grow rather organically, addressing the needs of our membership at large. The Indigenous Archaeology Collective formed during the summer of 2020 after the SAA had asked members to oppose recent changes to University of California Office of the President's repatriation policies. And it's a group of 10 of us, uh, my colleagues, Peter Nelson, Sim Schneider, Desiree Martinez, Wendy Teeter, Sonia Adelaide, myself, um, Patty Garcia, or Merrick Martinez. I think I've got everybody um, with that. And you know, we've known each other for decades now when we're part of like a loose affiliated group of indigenous archeologists who are both indigenous and non-indigenous and um, advocate for the rights of indigenous peoples to care for and protect their heritage. And so we've known each other since the early 2000s and have organized in a various front. And we decided to form the Indigenous Archeology span Collective as a way to re-kind of formulate our community that had been disbanded um, after our listserv had closed down. And the SAA event really catalyzed us to come back together and to think again about what we could do to help support and mentor younger Indigenous archaeologists within the field and discipline, as well as respond to several high-profile events within the SAA from, you know, the 2019 meetings where there's, um, you know, a sexual harasser and assaulter was allowed to attend the meetings. A uh, little known aspect of that was several Indigenous women were targeted as part of that harassment. And then directly following on that, the UCOP uh, repatriation um, policy action that SAA had taken really catalyzed us to come back together and think about how we could, like I said, support younger Indigenous archaeologists. This process has been has taken a lot longer to clearly try to think through what does it mean to have members of the collective? What kinds of actions do we want to formulate and how can we model some of the strategies that we use in our own daily lives and or communities um, with the form of membership? And we've been really thankful to be um, partnered with the Society of Black Archaeologists to learn from them how they were able to kind of solidify and create their own organization. So for the Black Trowel Collective, it, it's kind of wrapped up, in, in my mind, it's wrapped up in, I think, a lot of people's uh, long-term, a lot of people who are in the collective, their long-term uh, kind of organizational practice and interest in, in uh, anarchist actions and, and, and politics parallel to, uh, to anarchism. And for a long time, um, there was just no uh, kind of space or conversation happening amongst most of us. Um, and I think in about 2012 is where I kind of had a realization that a lot of the interest I had outside of uh, the academy and archaeology in particular are actually really relevant within the academy and archaeology. And, and I, I, I kind of started stepping around a lot of the pushback I was getting. This was as a grad student as, uh, as well from, uh, from faculty members to start to incorporate some of this. And I had a lot of support from 
uh, some faculty also. And in, I think, 2014, Matt Sanger and I or, organized an essay uh, session uh, specifically on how anarchism can impact the contemporary practice of archaeology as well as our interpretations of the uh, of the past. And in uh, trying to organize that, we realized that there are a lot more practitioners out there, including our uh, kind of uh, matriarch, I guess, Teresa uh, Kins, uh, went by TK uh, at the time, who was an, uh, a field tech organizer in the 90s, uh, published uh, a zine called The Underground that was um, a kind of uh, attempt to uh, organize uh, labor rights for uh, field techs and, and crew chiefs in the United States. Um, and as we started to pull this together, we realized that we needed to continue this conversation. And so we got funding to do that out at the Amerind uh, through Wenner-Gren. And uh, I think everyone that was invited wasn't able to make it, but the, the group that was out there was James Birmingham, uh, who's been a longtime uh, anarchist organizer, is a board member for the Institute for Anarchist Studies, uh, our archaeologist uh, who uh, graduated from uh, New College in, in Florida um, and went into material cultural studies, no longer in the academy, uh, but very active uh, within the collective and, and within research and, and uh, action. Um, myself, Matt Sanger, Ed Gonzalez Tennant, uh, Uzma Rizvi, uh, Lisa uh, Palacio, uh, Teresa Kins, Carol Crumley uh, was there as as well, and and uh, I think I'm forgetting someone. Um, oh, Ed Henry, and um, uh, Bill Engelbeck uh, as as well. And and what we realized during the three days out in the out in the desert was that uh, we really had no interest in. Uh, running an actual <laughs> workshop out there, even though we had a lot of products uh, come out of it, a lot of publications that came out of it. Uh, mostly we um, uh, walked around the grounds and talked about uh, our uh, visions for the present and, and, the, and the future. And um, during the course of that, we realized uh, that, you know, uh, there was a space I, that uh, we could open up for ourselves. And that's kind of where the community manifesto uh, grew out of. And then from there, it was a lot of, uh, and that was co-authored uh, kind of simultaneously by most of us at that um, uh, at that workshop, along with interactions. We'd opened up the workshop to folks on Twitter as well. So we're uh, conversing with people outside of the actual uh, workshop. For a couple of years, it was uh, difficult to actually Organize, and we kept in touch uh, usually by uh, meeting up at the SAs, people who are either at the workshop or involved in, in one project or another. This includes folks like Colleen Morgan uh, and stuff as, as well. And then um, James Flexner, he was also at the, the workshop. And that was sort of our touchstone until we, uh, as we bounced around through different online uh, formats, because we're spread all over the all over the world now. I think literally we're in uh, on every continent except for Antarctica uh, at this point. And uh, finally, we all uh, ended up on on Discord. And and since then, and that was back in 2020. Uh, it's it's really flourished and it's become a lot of our um, daily lives. I think. Hello, hello. My name is Yole Ngandali. I'm a member of the Mbaka tribe from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I am also a uh, graduate student over at the University of Washington, a graduate student in archaeology, and the secretary for SBA. My question is, in the articles for this episode, you confront racism and critique power structures in really interesting and important ways. Can you speak to embracing the spirit of resistance for those listening, still unsure how to take action? And for those that have been fighting, how can we best raise each other up? I think the spirit of resistance is something that really resonates with many of us here on this podcast and thinking about I mean, most of us come from communities that have not been embraced in wider society and especially in archaeology. And there is an experience of being the only one in the spaces that we enter I think in order to survive and not just survive, but flourish in those spaces, you do have to find strategies of resistance and ways of becoming or actually being your own whole self and bringing your own whole self to the work that you're doing. That's something that in chatting with like prior generations of indigenous archaeologists and other minoritized, um, minoritized individuals in archaeology, 
people haven't always been able to bring their full selves. And I think one of the things that has been important to me in coming through, you know, from being an undergraduate to graduate student at UC Berkeley and then a postdoc and now faculty member has been finding a community of people who are similarly have that experience of being the only one and networking to, with one another to chat about those feelings of isolation. So that for me is like it's the initial kind of part of resistance. In writing the article with, um, with Jade and Isabel, we really also came together to think about resistance as a form of creativity, of active creativity, and a way of not just um, responding to the challenges that we face, but really manifesting a new world in which we're not the only one and in which things like equity and inclusion are taken seriously and are at the, the outset. And I think for me, that, that kind of explains my approach to resistance here. I have to kind of double down on some things that that Sarah has said. I, I think, you know, both in terms of how we in the collective, which is a you know incredibly diverse group of people with a lot of different uh, concerns and experiences have approached this as to, um, you know, look at how each of us have been impacted in our daily lives. I'm, I identify and present as uh, cisgender, straight, uh, white male, and and you know within our society and within the academy that comes with a significant amount uh, of privileges. But even within that position, you know I come from a lower socioeconomic background. Started in community college, uh, worked my way up uh, through um, uh, undergraduate into into grad school, and and was financially stressed as many of us are uh, through grad school to the point that you know we were on state assistance and dumpster diving for. Uh, for food to to help uh, feed the family. And I'm also uh, non-visibly disabled. And so there's struggles that have impacted, I think, all of us to some level that I use for myself personally to kind of step into uh, accomplice uh, shoes and and think about uh, ways that I can more be more effective uh, within uh, these kind of empowerment and uh, resistance circles. Um, we really try to focus it on ideas of care uh, within the collective and, and, and joy. And that goes from everything from you know, research to our uh, relationships with each other, uh, to our relationships with other groups. And, and we're really uh, focused on, on things like coalition building uh, as, as well. So that kind of community uh, aspect and, and uh, ideas of care are kind of are, are centered and that's what we try to practice uh, within these kind of isolating worlds that we live in. Yeah, and just to add to what Louis and Sarah have mentioned, reiterating the necessity for care within this work, right? So what I love so much about SBA and its founding is that we were students at the time. We were, I was an undergraduate, Justin was a graduate student. And we of course looked towards our elders as like a North star of like how we wanted to move forward. But we ultimately looked to our sides as well, other graduate students, undergraduate students um, who also were trying to live and trying to figure out how we can survive, thrive, create projects that had meaning for us, create projects that resonated in the communities that we were in service to. Um, and that felt like the, the grounds for the kind of organization that has sprung up in SBA. It's really like, okay, you know, what can we do with the people who are in the room right now to create the kind of um, not only just you know discipline that we want to see in the future, but also the kind of lives that we want to to live while in this space, right? Um, so you know the the sort of core um, programming that I feel we have that I think resonates most deeply um, is the writing group that Yoli actually does um, each week. And it is open to both SBA members and non-SBA members. And it acts as a space where folks literally come together to you know, group around the concept of a writing group. But if you actually log in, there's check-ins with each other, there's laughter, there's smiles. There's also just a soundboard so you know that people can hear you as well when you're going through struggles, struggles 
troubles are struggles and troubles mixed together. Troubles and struggles <laughs> within this discipline and within um, within life more broadly. And I think it's those spaces that make you know um, livability possible for archaeologists of African descent. Um, so that in, in many ways feels like the kind of core of what SBA is reaching towards. And then of course we have all these other initiatives that get at more sort of systemic issues of um, diversity, exclusion and things like that. And all of that work is also very important. And um, our actual bodies, you know, us as like the people who are doing this labor, it feels that much more important to ensure that we practice um, or in a, a deep practice of care with ourselves and our communities to ensure that we're not burnt out in the process. Anine Bujou, hello everybody. I'm Ashley Thompson. I use she, her pronouns. I'm Anishinaabe and a member of the Red Lake Ojibwe tribe. And I am on a leave of absence from the anthropology PhD program at the University of Arizona and currently working as the Director of Tribal Collaboration at Archaeology Southwest in Thana Atham in Pascoyaki lands, also known as Tucson, Arizona. My question is something that I've been struggling with and part of the reason I'm on a leave of absence um, is how do we not only exist and work, but thrive in a discipline founded and operating within settler colonialism? Um. This question, I know it's centered at like the discipline being founded on settler colonialism. And in many ways, like the way that I live my life, I think about, you know, life in the aftermath of the transatlantic slave trade means that all aspects of my life are often um, within the kind of framework of settler colonialism and what it means to, to breathe futurity into that. Um, I think the way that, you know, we have to move forward is, you know, <laughs> I think about spaces of fugitivity, right? I think about spaces of maronage. I think about quilombos in Brazil. I think about the ways in which people were quite literally, if you think about like the earliest quilombos in Brazil, these were not just spaces of maronage, but these were alternative, um, alternative community building, alternative world building spaces, right? That actually were pushing against what was um, the kind of hegemony of settler colonialism in really expansive ways. And I feel like the groups that we are co that we the groups that we are a part of that are building and growing um, are part of that kind of work of building maronage, of building alternative spaces of breath. And you can see it in the programs that are centered in the organizations. You can see it in the kind of archaeological scholarship that members are pushing forth. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's not without the kind of pushback and outward sort of antagonism that comes with it. But it is, it, it is possible because we're here doing it. Right, and we're and we're saying it, and I feel like that notion of just being able to envision it is like the first step, and then the actions that we're taking every single day with every course syllabus that we put together, every class that we teach, every field project um, feels like it's just a step towards that that new world. That was really beautiful response, Ayana. I just it's just. You mentioned there like the creativity and imagining of a new world. And to me, I wrote a paper, uh, first a conference paper, and now it's a book chapter with a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Ora Merrick Martinez. Uh, she's at the Nor at Northern Arizona University and she's a Diné and Nimupu woman. And in it, we talk about the importance of finding your community that, you know, entering academia in these spaces is an incredibly isolating experience and it's, and there's so much shame attached to it. You're made to not feel like you're part of it. And in each of our journeys, we discuss how we came into archeology span and how we've been able to thrive. And the key part of it is finding friends and finding community and being able to have a wider support network. You know, most indigenous students and or and other minoritized students, they come into programs and they're the only one. And you're made to feel like you have to accommodate 
the institution and the department and its you know structures of practice and all of those kinds of things. And that can be such an isolating experience. It's compounded when you're also forced to move across the country, you know, in order to attend a graduate school. And even afterwards, you know, I remember I remember myself being so incredibly shocked when I discovered that if I really wanted to follow like an academic path and try to go for um, academic jobs, it meant that I would have to abandon my community. You know, as a graduate student at Berkeley, that was the longest time I've ever lived in one place. It was eight years. And when I got my, when I got a postdoc at Vassar College, I was confronted for the first time of going to another new place to not knowing anybody and to leaving this massive support network that had supported me you know, through all kinds of challenges. And that was, that was a really hard thing to confront. <laughs> it was a really, really difficult thing to confront. And the only thing that really got me through was the networks that, and the friendships that I had built, not just with members of my graduate community, but of the larger community of indigenous archaeologists through Closet Chickens. You know, through each point of my career, that listserv and the friendships that kind of developed as we met each other at conferences around the world was really the main way that we could stay in touch and to share these experiences and to, you know, just be able to acknowledge that when you're experiencing something that it's not, you know, when you feel off about it, you know, those, those common microaggressions and not just microaggressions, but macroaggressions that you're made to, you know, kind of question your sanity around just having people to reach out to, to be able to say, to validate those experiences was so incredibly critical. As I went through the tenure process in particular, uh, that in reaching out to, I don't want to use the word elders here because <laughs> in the closet chickens would thoroughly reject that they've reached elder status at this point, but reaching out to colleagues who had started going through the tenure process, I found out that just about every single individual who um, whether or not they were Indigenous or non-Indigenous who work with tribal nations, every single one had a fight and a struggle in order to get tenure. And there was so much trauma associated with it. And just that moment of like reaching out and connecting, it provided an opportunity for us to share some of that and to receive support from those experiences. But those are things that like people, you know, you that we're trained not to talk about, you know. I think when I first entered my job at the University of Washington, a colleague uh, gave me a piece of advice, and that piece of advice was show no weakness. It gives you a sense <laughs> for you know, kind of the structures and like how we're supposed to behave in these spaces and how you're just like stuffing things down. And really for me, finding community was a way to express those things that were that were, you know, that we're trained to kind of suppress and to not talk about and to reject the shame of marginalization that, that often is experienced in these spaces. And I know, you know, I think one of the goals that we've had with the Indigenous Archaeology Collective is to figure out how we can have a more broad mentoring network again, and to bring in more students and to be able to share with them our own experiences and to also provide them support because there's so few native students within archeology span at the undergraduate level. And that just compounds when you get to the MA and the PhD level. I'm Elliot Helmer. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a queer settler archeologist, a doctoral candidate in anthropology at Washington State University and a full-time CRM archeologist in California. And I am also a member of the Black Trowel Collective. So my question is, most archaeology in the United States takes place within the legal and capitalist constraints of cultural resource management, neither of which account for diverse heritage values. And as Sarah and her co-authors point out, these practices often push forward capitalist and gentrifying development projects. At the same time, we learn from anarchism that counterpower and resistance can and do occur within such constraining institutions. So how can we advocate for the ideals described in these papers and by these organizations within such legal and institutional frameworks? Thank you, Elliot. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really wonderful question. And it's a, uh, I don't have a, a, a great answer for that. <laughs> for that. Um, I think the way a lot of us are, are, are situated and, and working uh, within these kind of uh, broader existing uh, inequitable structures, one of the first things, at least uh, from, you know, the, uh, an anarchist perspective, at least, is that we try to uh, just enact 
how we want things to be happening uh, in the future, in the in the here and now, and 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 instead of uh, trying to move in a direction where we hope things will go, we just implement uh, at uh, that point in time. Within a CRM context, that can be really challenging, especially when you are operating uh, or working for a company or a field tech for a company or crew chief or field director, uh, and and you're not necessarily uh, the person who's making decisions on these uh, projects. One of the things I'll advocate with my students quite a bit and, and uh, folks in the BTC talk about uh, as well, and this is particularly oriented around the United States uh, legal uh, frameworks, is to, uh, when, when we're moving from this sort of process of, uh, you know, being a student into a professional uh, career in, in archaeology, to not think of legal frameworks as um, a target, uh, but think of them as a starting uh, point. There's nothing in the legislative <laughs> work that says you can't move above and beyond them. And so we do have some CRM companies uh, that do that on the regular. And so we uh, try to advocate uh, within those uh, structures to move uh, up and, and beyond. Uh, other ways has been to start to make uh, spaces both within those existing frameworks. And some of that ends up being things like uh, workers cooperatives instead of uh, a workers owned CRM firm or a more traditional uh, kind of business framework, uh, for-profit framework for a, a CRM firm. And there's a couple of groups that are forming right now that are looking at uh, changing um, that kind of uh, nature of how uh, workers are impacted within that framework uh, as well. And so I, I think the maybe to wrap all that up and, and shorten it is that a lot of these kind of processes for counterpower and, and resistance that can happen within these uh, kind of uh, broader structures uh, are best enacted uh, like on the ground as is in any way that you can make them uh, work. And in archaeology, we talk about that as, you know, kind of building the new world and the cracks of the old. Uh, it's also something that we talk about as uh, prefigurative direct action. Um, we also are really concerned with people being safe, right? And so the collective will often act on behalf of members uh, so that members don't necessarily have to uh, have the full weight of, of, of actions uh, that they might need to take. So that sort of like community behavior and, and care is also centered within that. I really approach my work in academia as one of changing the language that we use to talk about indigenous heritage and actually the tools that we use to care for and protect indigenous heritage. I think there's a lot of value in thinking about you know, archaeology both as a form of storytelling and as and as a form of relationship building. I want to talk about one of those projects, and that's the that's Field Methods in Indigenous Archaeology, which is a community-based participatory research project that I co-direct with the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Community of Oregon's Historic Preservation Office. And we've approached doing archaeology on the reservation as an opportunity to demonstrate and show for the tribal nations, other partners, so their agency partners, their partners in cultural resource management, what it means to practice in archaeology in a grand round way. And there's a lot of value here because, you know, often when the tribe goes and consults, you know, does government engages in government to government consultation with these partners, they're able to use our project and specifically our low impact archaeological methodology as an example of how they want their heritage to be worked with at sites, not just on reservation, but off reservation. As part of the field methods in Indigenous archaeology program, we run a training field school for undergraduate and graduate students, and we regularly host visits from partners in cultural resource management and the various state and federal and even local agencies so that they come out and they learn from, learn from our teams about the various methods that we use. And it serves as a basis for both education and for working towards this other, that other larger goal of integrating Grand Ron's methods for caring for its past um, into how other agency and heritage managers care for their past off reservation. And I think that's been a really powerful tool for them. The other thing that uh, we've been able to kind of participate in with Grand Ronde's Historic Preservation Office is the building of what they call meaningful consultation. 
which is developing these personal relationships with heritage managers throughout their throughout their ancestral homelands and territories. And that that's described as Brees Edwards, the director of the Historic Preservation Office, and David Harrelson, the tribal historic preservation officer for, for the nation, talk about that as creating a foundation for people to become personally invested in the care and protection of Grand Ronde's heritage, to really understand what it means to work with Grand Ronde heritage and all that implies. And as a result of the relationship building that they've done, they've been able to care for and protect their, their heritage within lands that stretch all the way, you know, from in Western Oregon, from the border with Washington, all the way down to California. It's like a quarter of the state's lands and over half of the state's population lives within Grand Ronde's ancestral homelands. So that gives you a sense for like the range of places and communities that the, that the nation is attached to. And what's resulted from that meaningful consultation and that, that personal relationship building is that heritage managers have begun to integrate several of the methods that we use and also the process that we use in field methods in indigenous archaeology into how they manage heritage, even if, it's, even if it's very far away. I think those two things, changing the language of historic preservation to reflect the values and cultural protocols of, Grand Ronde, of the Grand Ronde Nation, and then also um, demonstrating a different form of practice on the ground that, you know, in specific techniques that actual heritage managers can employ and implement in their own daily practices. And those for me are the two big, two big ways that we've tried to counter this, you know, the larger institutional and regulatory framework that, that was certainly you know, created in disregard of indigenous values and, and in opposition to indigenous sovereignties. Hello, this is Sophia again with a question. While reading um, the foundations of an anarchist archaeology and the solutions offered in Guedes et al. and anti-racist archaeology, your time is now, I felt really inspired and energized. However, while reading the statements of the problems in the latter two pieces, I felt despondent, uh, particularly seeing how some of the problems of 2020 were only exacerbated and ignored by the new administration and more broadly, um, that the world seems to have squandered the opportunity COVID presented to rethink society um, and instead are focusing on a return to normal. Uh, how did it feel to write these pieces or similar pieces? Uh, how do you balance hope and possibilities for the future with the horrific events and systems that make radical change necessary? Such a powerful um, question and I think my first sort of take at it, so while I understand and, and know like the lived realities of COVID have been tragic for so many of us and has really shattered ways of being that were just concretely unjust, right? And it's really illuminated the ways in which our society almost glorifies the disposability of people. That something that has come from this moment that I've experienced, um, especially in relationship to SBA and the work that we're doing, are the ways in which we've leaned that much more into community for survival, right? Um, so what COVID has shown us is that our governments, and many of us already knew this, were not going to provide us with the kind of support necessary to live our lives, right? So once again, we turned to each other even deeper than before, right? And we created our own sort of cooperative economic practices, just cooperative community sustainability practices because of that. And we saw that so deeply in SBA as well, where during this time period, we have stretched our arms even farther to, to build a community across the Atlantic to ensure that we have are in conversation with archaeologists on the continent of Africa and Europe and the Caribbean and Brazil. There are ways that we've stretched out even further to understand who all is in this community that we want to thrive in. And we've also done a lot of intentional work on our own sort of infrastructure as well to ensure, okay, what do we need to actually 
as an organization reach towards the goals that we have for ourselves, but also for our membership and the communities that we serve, right? So this has been a space of intensive growth for us. And while structures in this world are falling apart around us, we've turned towards each other and solidified that much more what is important, right? What we need to to thrive in, in this space. And I feel like that is actually what keeps us moving forward. And it feels like the the kind of gas that keeps the the engine sort of rowing, especially when so many of us are exhausted. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that's my first sort of chip at that at that question. <laughs> Thank you, Ayana. That's uh, uh, I'm in the same boat. That's a that's a huge uh, question to to try to tackle, and that I think that balance between with incorporating hope while working on these uh, really uh, often traumatic projects, <laughs> to, to use a really sterile term, is what's really important because, as, as uh, Iana was saying, that's the only thing that keeps you afloat. Um, because these are, I mean, I think all of these projects, what we're talking about, BTC, SBA, IAC, are all uh, projects of care uh, work. And that comes with a huge weight of emotional labor. Uh, as well. So one of the first things that we try to do is uh, while we're doing this, whether it's on, you know, the mutual aid project, which we was, I think our, uh, the Black Trial Collective is more sort of tangible um, way to reach out and try to help people through a lot of the uh, crises that they were dealing with in their individual uh, lives. And that, you know, was uh, for everything from COVID related to, uh, you know, helping with legal fees uh, uh, arising from the protests from uh, 2020 and 2021 was has been for us to also be stepping in with each other and and checking on each other uh, and making sure that uh, we're not uh, burning out uh, too much and being honest. Like we talk about radical honesty quite a bit because uh, in the academy and uh, particularly situating this within the United States, uh, we aren't radically honest about what work does to us, right? We work too much, we burn out, and we become problematically unproductive, right, in terms of how uh, folks think about it. But we try to restructure that and not care about uh, productivity, but care about our, our health and our, and our relationships. The other thing has been to try to find, I, I guess I would say, our community uh, within those struggles. I'm kind of thinking a, a lot in terms of uh, well, what Bell Hooks has written about uh, where there's there's power and and hope in in the margins and and so this sort of process of of uh, of of finding our our communities in in reaction to these uh, really uh, uh, traumatic struggles I think has been um, a one that has allowed us to uh, find hope. Hi, it's it's Yoli again. In the article "Anti-Racist Archaeology." Gabrielle Miller explains how social capital is used and gained from academic institutions using Black faculty and students as a commodity in the social market. How can we as Black, Indigenous, and people of color use this social capital for our own benefit? Thanks, Yoli, for that question. It's a really powerful question to think about because the tokenization that you experience in these spaces is a very real thing. And often you're made to feel as if it's not. There's a not to overuse the term gaslighting, but there is a certain kind of denial of that tokenization that happens. You know, you experience it in the form of always getting invitations to serve on committees. Uh, it compounds surface work in the academy, especially for women of color, and that's compounded for Black women. I know in my own case, when I showed colleagues, both within the Closet Chickens, the, the Loose Collective of Indigenous Archaeologists, that I was a member of, and then also with other women of color researchers on the University of Washington campus, they were aghast at things that I was asked to do. And despite all of the advice that I had been given to say no, I found that colleagues never actually listened to the no. So I didn't have a problem saying no, it was just nobody would accept that. So I've certainly struggled with that aspect and trying to think about ways to be heard, to have my voice heard and recognized and 
to push back against some of the some of those burdensome requests and approaches to my own work and to my own scholarship. I don't think I have a perfect answer though about how to use the social capital. It's more of, you know, part of it is checking in with colleagues, checking in with best friends, um, strategizing with them how to respond to some of the things that some of the requests and other kinds of things that we experience in the academy. The clearest thing that I've had post-tenure happen is that people have started to listen a little bit more. And I've tried to use that power to help uh, to bring up other people behind me, you know, from students to other junior colleagues and to share those experiences so that other people can learn and benefit from them and try to negotiate their own pathways forward. Yeah, thank you so much for that answer, Sarah. I'm thinking about my own lived experience and people asking far (laughs) too much and then me actually like in a current state of burnout not being able to be productive in ways that are legible to institutions right but in much of the same way I feel like the answer to this is often how do we reallocate resources right like I Something that I have always sort of stood by is like this understanding that these institutions are not people, right? The community around me, the people that I turn to are are people. And so my interaction with my institutions are oftentimes very much transaction-based. And I'm like, okay, you want this work and labor from me. What is the resource that you provide? And how do I allocate that? to the work that I do, right? And this doesn't feel like a way of breaking down that system, but it certainly does feel like a way of navigating and existing within it in a, in a certain kind of way, which is, I feel like, the kind of necessary work right now, right? So even um, with this new position that I've taken at this very elite institution, my goal is actually just to figure out ways to allocate (laughs) all of the resources that they have to programming that SBA does, right? So I'm thinking, okay, we have resources. Well, how do we create, you know, sustainable programs that offer not students at this institution opportunities to do field schools because they have those in abundance, but getting more tribal students, getting more HBCU students, getting more students from Hispanic serving institutions, um, these opportunities, you know, so I think the the way that we are in conversation with this is often how, how do we create spaces of livability within these spaces that quite literally want to suck us um, dry and are succeeding <laughs> at it. So yeah, I think, I think that feels like a, a response. And then something else also to keep in mind, I think, especially for faculty of color, is that oftentimes institutions will use your passions to coerce you into more labor. What I've found is I've gotten sort of swept up in in the idea and the joy and the love of creating spaces within these institutions and what they've really done is, is is suck me dry. So I think often a lesson within that is also figuring out in the time and spaces of navigation and negotiation with these institutions, how do you still keep yourself grounded and honor your own sort of no's and yeses as well to move forward. So it's something I struggle with, as you can hear in my response. (laughs) Hey, this is Elliot again. So in the article by Ike Miller and Hartman, they discuss how the Black Lives Matter movement has made anti-racism and archeology span trendy. And they express concerns about the longevity of the attention it's getting. And I think that this caution surrounding trendiness can be extended to a number of recent archeological research directions, including decolonization, climate change, and anarchism. And it's concerning that certain researchers appear to be allies based on their research when in private, they often hold very different and often actively harmful views. So how should we as dedicated accomplices handle this without gatekeeping, but at the same time with a recognition of the safety concerns this sort of scholar poses in our spaces? That's a wonderful question, Elliot. Thank you. You know, I gave a presentation at a conference that was uh, complicatedly received (laughs) last year where I talked about how 
at least in the region I work in, decolonization seems to be most beneficial to white archaeologists. And, and I think it's been, and I think that kind of speaks towards what you're uh, what you're talking about. This sort of, uh, that kind of, you know, how do you navigate those worlds is tough, right? And I think about it both in terms of, you know, my research and in, and in terms of some of the kind of organizational practice, uh, both, you know, through uh, anarchism and, and others. And a lot of it, I so I'll kind of frame it in like these ideas within social movement literature and in terms of how you actually expand your message and get people to listen. And it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a necessary evil, but I, I think for every person that we end up working with or having uh, participating who's, uh, you know, publicly an ally and, and privately uh, anything, uh, anything but, uh, we are ending up with other people who are having, um, you know, significant shifts in, in, in thought and, and behavior or even being able to um, move into these uh, spaces more safely, maybe not safe, but more safely than they have been uh, before. And, and so I, I see part of our work in navigating that is to uh, kind of act as buffers using our own, those of us who have a significant amount of privilege, using our own privilege uh, for that as, as well. So that's my first kind of stab uh, at that following uh, what uh, Iana had said for the previous question. That's a really great question, Elliot, because it's something you know we're actively confronting. I've been on many hiring committees. I've been able to see these processes and how they work. And there's a desire to have these perspectives represented in the academy as long as it doesn't challenge the underlying power relations. For me, the way that I approach this, I kind of draw inspiration from my colleague, Jean Dennison. She was in anthropology with me and is now in American Indian Studies at UW. And she frames it as in relation to what are your commitments? What are your ethical commitments? What are your methodological commitments? And for me, that gets at the core feature here of how are you putting your words into practice and what are the motivations behind your work? I think that's less of a gatekeeping kind of role here that doesn't rely on people's identities or any other kinds of like metrics, but really goes to foundation and to the heart of what people are doing in their work in and through their practice. I think that for me has been an important thing as I've served on hiring committees to evaluate these things, as I've seen other colleagues do it. It's a really powerful way of thinking about our work. And it's something that I also try to pass on students. And I really thank my colleague, Jean Dennison, for it. Because it's really transformed thinking about how we can fairly evaluate various forms of archaeological practice right now. And I think the only thing I wanted to add to that, especially in thinking about the kind of trendiness of this work, is that trendiness often what it is is the kind of hyper visibility to white publics, right? But this work is always ongoing. Um, and I think I just wanna stress that while we see hashtags and we see more articles, for instance, being published around these topics, while that will likely shift as it has, because we've seen the kind of ebb and flow of this, especially within African diaspora archeology, span you have this kind of uptick in the 90s, it swings down, you have another uptick. So, but in between those, there is still there are still people who are working, right? People who are laboring in these spaces doing this work. And I think about the organizations that are present here today that have been doing work long before 2020. Right, and we'll continue doing work post the hypervisibility of this moment. Um, and I think like that kind of recognition feels really important to, to uplift in this space. So this is Sarah again. I just, in listening to all of these discussions and to the wonderful questions that our graduate student panelists have offered us today, I would really love to hear from you all how you position yourselves within the academy and deal with some of the struggles that you've highlighted. I think it's really important here as well for us as we're getting along in our careers to listen to future generations coming up because you often have such more vivid imaginations than we do and imagine more possibilities than we have been able to do. All right, this is Yoli again. I'm gonna try to say what I can say. Won't take up too much time here. 
Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll kind of, I kind of want to start around COVID, I would say. I feel like that was a really big point with me um, as far as being able to reach out and really find my community. And um, I feel like that starts with uh, Society for Black Archaeologists. That's when I became a part of the study group. That is where I really connected with other Black and African uh, students. And I was really able to really find those networks of care, find those communities as well. I mean, we've been doing this work with the Field Methods and in Indigenous Archaeology Field School of really trying to create this um, kind of intergenerational idea of like how we approach material culture. And that's something that I am very excited about to be moving forward to be able to do. And so um, bringing in, you know, undergraduates and then other faculty as well. Um, but then moving that into when you're working with communities to be able to understand that the youth and the elders are really important to doing this work as well. And so I know that I'm going to be bringing that forward in my research and in the way that um, I conduct um, my projects as we move forward. And another thing that really struck with me is what Sarah said earlier was just about just bringing your whole self, being able to exist and be in this space as a Black woman, as somebody that is that is really trying to learn who they are, right? And not necessarily, you know, just as identity, but and then also as a researcher, as um somebody that that has something to say when it comes comes to archaeology. And so I'm just very excited to have this space and have this moment. And um, I am looking towards, you know, people like people like Sarah, people like Aura, people like Ayana that like have really started this um, this trajectory. And I'm so excited for the future of archaeology. I know that there we've talked about so much of these pretty dark dark histories and these dark things, but um, I feel like we have a chance to build something beautiful and new in the way that we think about the future, and I'm here for it. Uh, this is Elliot again. I think there are two things that I would want to highlight in terms of like my position and how it fits into these sorts of conversations is, first, is that um, like I said when I introduced myself, I'm a settler archaeologist. I'm, I'm white. I'm currently st standing on Coast Miwok lands. My university is on Nimapu lands. There's a general, I think, resistance to acknowledging that position and actively owning that position among settler archaeologists. People get sort of defensive or like offended when you like acknowledge that fact. And they think that just by, you know, giving their like empty land acknowledgement and trying to do like decolonial work, they think that they have sort of absolved themselves of their structural material position as settler archaeologists. And I think that that's something that I'm, I really push people to consider is like, we have to look at ourselves and recognize what position we are holding and think about that every time we work with our communities and every time we take a public stance, we have to acknowledge those material positions. And then the other thing that I would want to say is that especially like during like COVID, the sort of, I think it was Sophia said the word despondent, like this despondence that you feel, this like hopelessness as you watch everything sort of crumble around you. I think that really pushed me to get involved really directly in activism and really act on all of these values and positions that I already held. And that's sort of what led me to get involved in the Black Trowel Collective, really wanting to make a difference, do something, anything to tackle that despondence. Like if you're feeling hopeless, get involved in something like, and I think that archeology span has to be uh, political and it has to involve this direct action. And I think that that's so important in terms of where this discipline is going. And if we want archeology span to make a difference in the world, um, it's not enough to just say, oh, well, this paper has the potential to contribute to this kind of research. You need to go out and do it. and make those potentials happen. So I think that that's something that, especially during COVID, I've really sort of taken to heart and tried to get really involved, both sort of to prevent my own existential dread, but also just to, if we're going to move out of this, we, we need to, it's all about direct action. It's about doing something. We're not going to get out of this just by sitting around and being upset about it. So I think that that's something else that I've really focused on in my work, especially in the last two years. Hey, this is Ashley. Um, I just kind of want to echo a lot of what has been said already. I really like what Elliot just said when they mentioned action. I think that is super important. 
in so many spaces that I have been a part of, whether it be academia um, or some of my like side hustles in the outdoor industry, I often think about what an elder, an Anishinaabe elder, um, Henry Morrison said to me, you're talking the talk, but are you walking the walk? And I often think about that um, within academia and these other spaces. How do we move beyond an indigenous land acknowledgement and actually act on supporting and helping indigenous people and indigenous lands? So I wanted to touch on that. Also really loved what Sarah um, was saying about establishing community. For me, it's been so important In undergrad, I felt very supported. Luckily, I was at an institution with a lot of Indigenous students at the University of Minnesota Morris. The student population for Native people hovers between like 10 and 15% of the student body, which is very unusual. And it has to do with that school's history as a boarding school for Native Americans and the tuition waiver that was established because of that history. So as I've kind of gone farther and farther into academia, though, like, as people were saying today, that community of Indigenous uh, scholars shrinks because there's quite a few, at least in my, at my institution, quite a few Native students that Um, helped form an Indigenous community on campus, but then in grad school, those numbers shrink. And then uh, when you're pursuing your PhD, that that body gets even smaller. And so establishing and building and continuing relationships with like-minded people that share aspects of my identity, whether that be Indigenous identity, my identity as a woman of color, those have been really helpful for me. and I really loved what Ayana was saying about how we, how they um, look at the resources that their institution has and tries to figure out how that they, how they can spread that themselves or like even just the students at their institution. Because I think for a lot of Native students, especially when we're, we enter grad, stu- grad school and beyond, it seems like it's a very selfish pursuit and that we're getting this degree, we often have to write um, for an academic audience, which doesn't really touch the majority of our community. Um, It's not very accessible to a lot of other indigenous people. And we're often like taken away, as Sarah said, from our community in order to get these degrees and then do a postdoc and then work at a university somewhere, wherever we can get a job. And so academia to me has often felt very selfish or when there've been big social social movements. And so most recently people were talking about 2020 and the pandemic and Black Lives Matter. Um, when I started grad school in 2015, within my first year, the Standing Rock No Dakota Access Pipeline protests were occurring. And I was in in Tucson, in Southern Arizona. And I was trying to, I was seeing um, my online community really mobilizing, going to Standing Rock, doing nonviolent direct action, camping out. And I felt really torn being so far away from the action and not being able to contribute. And so I think I, I really wanted to be there. And so I got a group of badass indigenous women together and we drove 24 hours Um, to the Standing Rock Lakota Reservation and just took a few days to do that. And it really re-energized us. And so I think like if we don't feel like we have the space or the time to to pursue those community-driven actions that we want to be a part of, I really encourage other students um, or people in academia to to figure out ways to make it happen because it it really can be re-energizing and uplifting to, to return back to your community and figure out ways to help. So um, that's all I'll say for now. There is so much more for us to discuss, but unfortunately, that will have to be the last word for this episode of Sapiens Talkback. Professor Fluellen, Professor Gonzalez, Professor Bork, thank you so much for this thoughtful and thought-provoking discussion. You can support the Black Trowel Collective microgrants program at blacktrowelcollective.wordpress.com and follow them on Twitter at Black Trowel. To join the SBA, Go to societyofblackarchaeologists.com and follow their work on Twitter at SBAARC. And you can follow the Indigenous Archaeology Collective on Facebook and Twitter at IndigArcs. 
Sapiens Talk Back was developed in collaboration with the Indigenous Archaeology Collective and the Society of Black Archaeologists, with special help from Dr. Sarah Gonzalez, Dr. Justin Dunavant, Dr. Ora Marek Martinez, and Dr. Ayana Fluellen. Special thanks also to Dr. Chip Colwell at Sapiens, Dr. Danilin Rutherford at the Wenner Gren Foundation for Anthropological Research, and the House of Pod. This episode was made possible by financial support from the Department of Anthropology at the University of Colorado, Denver. We want to thank our panelists for leading our conversation today, Ashley Thompson, Elliot Helmer, and Yoli Ngondali. Thanks also to the member organizations of the Archaeology Center's Coalition for supporting Sapiens Talkback. You can find more information about their work at archaeologycoalition.org. Radio Siams is a member of the American Anthropological Association's podcast library. This episode was produced at Cornell University by Adam Smith, with Liam McDonald as our engineer and Rebecca Gerdes as our production advisor. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gayugahono, the Cayuga Nation. Gayugahono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gayugahono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gayugahono people past and present to these lands and waters. And we encourage you to investigate the indigenous histories and living communities connected to the places that you occupy. If you missed any of the previous episodes of Sapiens Talkback, you can find them by searching for Radio Siams on your favorite podcatcher. We hope you enjoyed this series and urge you to get involved with the new organizations reshaping archaeology. I'm Sophia Taborski. And I'm Alice Wolf. Thanks for listening.